Now, grab your Bibles, if you will, and open them to Ephesians chapter 5. And if you're uh, new here or haven't been around in a while, um, not every year, but a lot of years, um, what I try to do is use the Sundays between Mother's Day and Father's Day to concentrate on the family. As you know, the family is somewhat besieged in our culture and day, and so it seems that it's uh, kind of a necessary to talk about the Christian family uh, frequently. The next two editions or episodes in this series will be about parenting. We'll get to that uh, next week and then a week later. But we've spent three weeks on just discussing the basics of marriage, and we'll do that again today. And you follow as I read, beginning at verse 22, and we'll read through the end of chapter uh, 5 of the book of Ephesians. Here we go. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that he might be holy, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God. That endures forever. Guys, what is it that makes a marriage a Christian marriage? Uh, Is it because you got married in a church with a pastor? Or maybe it's because one or both of you uh, attend a church. Or maybe it's because you, you pray over your meals. I would suggest that it's none of those things, folks. I would suggest that what makes a marriage a Christian marriage is a willingness, um, even an eagerness, to emulate a a God-given model, a God-given design for that institution. Now, folks, for the past couple of weeks, we have been talking about the basics of marriage. We talked last week about leaving and cleaving and about uh, one fleshness and all that. And this morning we come to some more basics, and it has to do with roles. Roles that are to be played by husband and wife. Um, As you know, long before you entered this room, I think, at least most of you did, The role that is assigned to a Christian wife is that she is to submit. The role that is assigned to a a Christian husband is that he is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. Now, at this point, 
the sparks begin to fly. Not so much about that husband loving his wife business either. It's that other thing, you know. Um, because in the minds of so many, the whole idea of submission is some kind of violation of my personhood. It's, um, it, it's, uh, it's an assault on my freedom. You know, and I, I gotta be me. And this, this idea of submission just doesn't, just doesn't cut it. And, and guys, I, I have said this to you before. That, that idea of freedom, that is freedom is the absence of all restraints. That is a bad definition of freedom. You don't, you don't believe that. You really don't. You might say it, but you don't believe that. For instance, what if I were to eat anything that I wanted, all of it that I wanted, as much as I wanted, as often as I wanted, any time I wanted? What would that do to me? No. But in the interest of something good, uh, health, I, uh, I live with some self-imposed restraints. Guys, freedom is not the absence of all restraints. Freedom is the presence of the right restraints. And, and this morning, I, I want you to know, this whole discussion is not about our freedom. It's about a design. It's about two people functioning in an institution according to their assigned roles, which is by design. So we're going to start like this. How many of you here like to dance? Now, I'm not talking about that dancing with the stars stuff or that that, that stuff that Beyonce does when she's advertising Comcast or whatever she's advertising, but I'm talking about that, that cheek to cheek stuff. You know, I don't know what it's called today. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, a dinosaur, but back in my day, we called it slow dancing. I, I, I don't know what they call it today, but that's, that's, and, and, and I have to tell you that, that I always considered myself quite a good dancer. Um, my wife <laughs> uh, vehemently opposed that position. Uh, in, in fact, when we would go to frat parties and people would gather around us while we danced, I always thought it was because they thought I was such a good dancer. And Susie, Susie told me that they were just making fun of me. And, and <laughs> but be that as it may, you know, even the dances that I used to put on when I was a singles minister at Central Church. You know, everybody would sit on the sidelines until a slow song came on. And then out of the chair and, and, and somebody had to find somebody because they wanted to, that, that cheek-to-cheek stuff, you know. Don't blame them, you know. Now, guys, that, that's the dancing I'm talking about. Just, just, just keep that in mind for a moment. Let me ask you some questions about that. <clears throat> Wild slow dancing... Does anyone disagree that somebody has to lead? No, no, somebody's got to lead. I mean, you, you get two people on the dance floor and nobody's leading. I mean, you, you got a mess on your hands. Somebody's got to lead. Okay, next question. Under normal circumstances, 
Who is it that is to play the role of leading in this, this dancing stuff? Well, that would be, that would be the man. Okay? Now, here's my final question. Does anyone feel violated in that arrangement? Or let, let me ask it a bit differently. Do you men who are charged with the responsibility, do you feel somehow superior? Of course not. What I'm saying, ladies and gentlemen, is that marriage, marriage in some ways is like a dance, a glorious dance, where two people give themselves to the assigned roles to produce something that is beautiful. So that's the first thing that I want you to keep in mind, folks, as we, as we, as we talk about roles. That, that it's like a dance. Now, here's, here's the second thing. I want you to go back with me, um, to Genesis 2 one, one more time. Um, I, I need to show you a couple more things that we haven't looked at in Genesis 2. Just, we'll, we'll try to do this hurriedly, but there's, this is the second line of argument or second line of thought that I want you to go with me down. Folks, you, you know the story. God creates Adam, but there's a problem because he's alone, and so he sets out to create another creature. Now look, now look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a supervisor. Um, no, ladies and gentlemen, it says, I will make him a helper. Now, guys, uh, all I'm trying to say is this. There is a real distinction made in the roles that are to be played. And those roles trace all the way back to Genesis 2, not Ephesians 5. Adam is to assume the role of leader. And Eve is to assume the role of helping him. Now stay with me. Does that mean that Adam is somehow superior or better? Because if it does, you have just rewritten the doctrine of the Trinity. Why? What do you mean I've rewritten the doctrine of the Trinity? What does the Trinity have to do with anything about marriage? I want to show you. Keep your finger in Genesis 2, but flip over in the New Testament to 1 Corinthians 11. Are you there? 1 Corinthians 11. I'm saying that Adam assumes the role of leader in this, this, this dance. And I've asked, does that mean that he's better, that he's superior? And I'm saying that if it does, then you have rewritten the doctrine of the Trinity. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. You got it? Head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. That's not what we're looking at. It's this next phrase, clause. And the head of Christ is God. Do you see that? The head of Christ is God. Do you see that? 
Ladies and gentlemen, in the earliest centuries of the church, I think this was about the fourth century of the church, a big problem developed. Big problem. It had to do with the members of the Trinity. It was called Arianism. Uh, it was led by a guy by the name of Arius. That's why it was called Arianism. But Arius suggested that inside the Trinity there were three persons, but there was a rank and an order. There was a rank of superiority. And that uh, based on a text like this, and that the head of Christ is God, he said that that the Father was better and different and and more qualitatively uh, uh, important than the other two. That position was rejected as heresy. And it was been maintained since the fourth century that the three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, maintain, stay with me, here's a big word for you, they maintain an ontological equality. You know what ontology is? Ontology is the study of being. That is, in terms of the Trinity, in terms of their being, there is an ontological equality. Each person in the Trinity is equal to the other. Equal in power and glory and dignity and worth and majesty and dominion and power. All those things. All three persons of the Trinity are equal. However, inside the Trinity there is what's come to be known as economic roles. That is, each person of the Trinity has a, has a role to play. For instance, who do we normally think of as the author of this book? Oh, well, that would be the God, the Holy Spirit. And who is it that we, not normally, but who, who is it that died on the cross? Mm, that would be God, the son. And who is it that we normally think of as the creator of the heavens and the earth? That would be God, the father. Those are roles that they play, ladies and gentlemen. There is a distinction in their roles while there is a mutuality and equality in their being. Do you see that? 1 Corinthians 11 says that God is the head of Christ. And if that means what some of you think is going on in marriage, then that means that Christ is less valuable, of less worth than God the Father. Folks, there is an ontological equality, but an economic role to play within the Trinity. The same is true in marriage. Guys, if you're back at Genesis 2 real quick, there is an ontological equality between husband and wife. He says, she is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Look at chapter 1 real quick, verse 27. Uh, and God created man in his own image, and in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. That is, a female is just as much a bearer of the image of God as is a male. There is an ontological equality between husband and wife, between man and woman. But their roles are different. Guys, 
let me just say this too, just added out of Genesis 2. I want you to notice something. Um, Adam gets through naming the animals. Then he's got one more name to assign. Who would that be? He gives Eve her name. He gives her the name woman. Actually, later he gives her the name Eve. He assigns a name because he is assuming the role that was given him as leader of this twosome. He is agreeing to husband his wife. And so he gives her the name. Just like we do today. There is a sense in which, ladies, when you, when you married, you were given a name by your husband. You know, my, my wife's uh, maiden name was Betzelberger. She was dying to get rid of that thing. <laughs> and so she found that, I mean, that's why I ended up with this treasure. Because, oh, if you'll change my last name, I'll, I'll take you, buddy. But the, the submission is not something that takes place or began in Ephesians 5. You find its very origins in Genesis 2, before sin. Submission is not the consequence of sin. Difficulty is the consequences of sin. But submission is just an assigned role. A Christian marriage is a Christian marriage because there's a couple who is willing and even eager to assume or to emulate the design that's been given them. And that's what you see in Genesis 2, guys. Now, keep those things in mind. That is, I've, I've tried to liken marriage to a dance. That's my first point. My second point is, out of Genesis chapter 2, what you see is an ontological equality, but a different assignment of roles. And that it doesn't, the different roles doesn't mean inferior, superior, just like it doesn't mean that in a dance. And then I got one more line of argument and I'm, I'm done. Go now over to our text in Ephesians chapter 5. Now guys, um, the book of Ephesians is arranged just like every one of Paul's epistles. The, the Pauline strategy was this. He would start an epistle and he would give you his theological treatise. And then towards the end of the book, he would add some practical applications. Uh, what he does in the book of Ephesians is he goes through chapters 1, 2, and 3, and he gives you this great uh, explanation of the redemptive plan that God has in mind to save Jews and Gentiles as accomplished in Christ, not made possible in Christ, but accomplished in Christ. It's all there in, in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. His great description of the plan of God. And then in chapter 4, like he does in every one of his epistles, he, he begins to tell you what is it mean, what is it going to look like to live in the light of those great truths. Notice chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore. <laughs> now, guys, you know that when you see a therefore, you're supposed to ask, okay, what's that therefore, therefore? Paul is saying, in response to what I just taught you in chapters 1, 2, and 3, in light of that, therefore, 
He says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility. Do you see what he's doing? What he's doing now is saying, okay, in light of the gospel that we believe, I want you to now do this. You've heard me say this before, but you really ought to get this down. Imperatives grow out of indicatives. (laughs) You know what an imperative is? It's a command. Obedience to commands grow out of who I am, not the other way around. My obedience to commands doesn't produce who I am because of who I am. Out of that comes the obedience to imperatives. Imperatives grow out of indicatives. So in chapters 1, 2, and 3, you get all these indicatives. And then he says, now, in light of that, I want you to walk. Um, he uses that word walk. There it is in 17. Uh, it's in verse 15 of chapter 5. Uh, it's about five places in there. Uh, yeah, there it is in, in 5, 8. I want you to walk. Walk. And so what he's telling us is, in response to the great truths that we hold dear, defining who we are and to whom we belong, I want you to live a certain way. And then he gives you some specifics. Uh, for instance, in chapter five, chapter four, uh, in verse 25, he says, don't lie anymore. He says, uh, hey, go get a job. Don't steal anymore. Uh, stop that anger. And then he comes over to verse 15 of chapter five and he says, now be very careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And then he says something about worship and then he comes to marriage. And he says, as a part of the response to the great indicatives of the gospel, rooted in a Christological indicative, wives, submit. Now, guys, if I were to say that on any college campus at least a state school in America, they would hoot me off the stage. Because what they hear is some kind of um, oppression, some kind of subjugation, some kind of despotic exploitation. But listen to me, will you? I promise you that the first century audience that heard this for the first time did not react that way. In fact, when first century Ephesus got this letter, their response was not, oh, he's violated my freedoms. They did not see it as somehow some way to elevate men above women. They didn't see it like that. What they saw was absolutely revolutionary. What they saw is women being elevated to a position of equality with men for the first time ever in any culture anywhere. That's what they saw. Now, how did we get here? How did we get to the place that if I stand on a college campus and mention the word, I was, um, I was working out one Monday, oh, about three weeks ago, 
this man comes up to me and says he had just gone to the, the wedding of his daughter and his daughter's going to this wacko church in Knoxville, Tennessee. And, and he, and I was, you know, lifting all these weights, you know, and he says, and you know what they said, Jimmy? He told his wife to submit. And I said, really? Who would ever do something that archaic? I didn't say that part. But guys, how do we, how do we come to the place where the first century audience in Ephesus sees this as Look what he has done. Ladies and gentlemen, it is the Apostle Paul who said, there is no Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, male nor female. That was Paul. And for that, he got rewarded with the moniker, he's a woman hater. Where'd you get it? I'll tell you where you got it. You got it from magazine articles. You got it from the TV therapists. You got it from the from the TV um, talk show hosts. Ladies, you're not easy to dance with. By the way, if you've been taught this, let me unteach you. Because you, you, can't, you can't avoid the responsibility by appealing to verse 21, where it says submitting to one another. See there, it says everybody's supposed to. That's true. That is very true. But guys, read on to verse 24, where it says, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So if you're not supposed to submit to your wife, then the church is not supposed to submit to Christ. Yes, you are. Let me tell you what submission is, folks. Try to give you a working definition. Submission is the voluntary yielding. To your husband's leadership role. Now, notice the text does not is not addressed to men. It doesn't say, men, see to it that your wives submit. It doesn't say that. It says to women, it, it, it addresses women in the vocative. You know what the vocative is? It's a it's a calling. Well, wives, voluntarily yield. To the assigned role of your husband. All right. I'm running out of time. So I've got to come to the men's. And gentlemen, I want you to notice just something real quickly. Apparently, we're harder to teach than women are. Because the women get 40 words. We get 115. And... um, Our responsibility is this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Oh, but Jimmy, my wife is hard to me. No, you know, she doesn't, she doesn't submit. Okay, we'll talk about that in just a second. But let me say this. Neither does Jesus' wife. And he still loves her. By the way, you ladies who think you you men got off easy, I'll change roles with you. Give me that. I'll take yours. You take mine. I heard R.C. Sproul tells this story just recently on his series of marriage. He said a study was recently done where um, it was discovered that men have five times more nightmares than women. And do you know what the number one nightmare is that is had by men? The number one nightmare 
is the fear of not being able to provide for his family. If you're a man in this room, you know exactly what that is. Don't you? Don't you? We live with that, don't we, brothers? You want that, ladies? Then take the heart attacks that come along with it. Yes, we do live with that responsibility, gentlemen. It is ours. But can I say this again? I said every wedding I do, I've said it a half a dozen times in this church. Let me say it to you again. I have never met a woman yet. Not one. I have never met one woman ever, any place, any time, anywhere, who has ever complained about submitting to a man who adored her. Gentlemen, loving our wives, playing that role properly produces submission. That's what happened with Jesus. I mean, he loved me into submission, this, this wild jackass of a man. He loved me into submission. And if that's true, which it is, but if that's true, then gentlemen, you need to know on this a bit that at least part of the reason, maybe not all of it, but part of the reason that women find it so hard to submit is because we have never played our biblically assigned role as loving them as Christ loved the church. Women have not seen men love like that. What they've seen is men assault their wives using the club of Ephesians 5.22. Brothers, I'm not saying all the blame. But at least some of the blame is ours. We... um, We talk so much about the women's role and how much the culture hates submission. And I did this, and and, then it does. But we talk so much about that, that we neglect the role of men. It gets thrown in the back seat. It gets underemphasized. I'm saying to you, gentlemen, part of the reason that we've got the problem that we've got is because we failed. We fail to um, we fail to love our wives as Christ loved the church. So here's what I'm pleading for this morning: for two people to engage in a marital dance that, when done rightly, is downright beautiful. I want to. I want to close with telling you a story. I probably shouldn't do this, but I've got four minutes left, so let me let me try to tell you my story, and, and I'm done. It's a it's a story that came out of a movie, a movie that I saw about a year ago. It's, it was about a two year old movie, but I saw it about a year ago, um, and it the title of the movie was The Three Ten to Yuma. <laughs> Did you see that with Russell Crowe? Um, Russell Crowe played the part of um, Ben Wade. 
He was Ben Wade, this, this notorious criminal, this horrible gangster who, um, who he and his gang would, would, um, ride in and, and rob the stagecoaches and shoot all the Wells Fargo people and take all the gold and the money and, and then run off to their caves or wherever they live, whatever. And, um, uh, the part of the story as the character develops in the movie is Ben Wade, um, was raised in a godly home. And uh, his mother, the reason he said he, he explains why he where he went bad. He said, I began to go bad when my mother left me alone for good in a train station while I was reading the Bible. And um, Ben Wade had a six shooter. And on the on the on the handle of the six shooter was a cross. And he called his gun the word of God. <laughs> uh, maybe that's why I like the movie. But um, I liked Russell Crowe ever since I saw him in The Gladiator. I just liked his movie. But anyway, um, then there was this other guy. It was played by Christian Bale. And his name was Dan Evans. Dan Evans was a family man. He had a cute little wife and two sons, a 14-year-old boy by the name of William, and a younger son who had tuberculosis. And because he had tuberculosis, they had to live in... I guess Yuma is in Arizona, but let's just say he had to live in the, the, the dry, hot uh, climate of Arizona because of the son, the younger son with tuberculosis. But Dan had um, got his foot shot off in the Civil War. And so um, uh, finally, the Wells Fargo people capture Ben Wade, the, the notorious criminal. They capture him, but they got to get him to town so that he can catch the 310 to Yuma to stand trial. The 310 is a train, okay? So they got to get him there, and, and he is a bad boy. And he's got this gang that's still out there. And um, so the, the Wells Fargo people are trying to put together a posse to take uh, Ben Wade to, into town to catch the 310 to Yuma so he can stand trial for all of his crimes. And so Wells Fargo comes to Dan Evans' home. They're trying to recruit him to be a part of this posse. And they offer him $200, more money than ever seen in his life. His farm is, 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 is about to die because of drought, and he's got this sick son. And, and, and they bring Ben Wade into his house. He's in shackles and handcuffs. And, um, and he sits down, and they, they give him a meal, and he shows impeccable manners. He's very nice to the lady of the house. She's a cute little blonde, and and um, and I thought that's where the movie was going to go, but it didn't go that way. But um, um, real nice to her shows that he knows certain things, and he knows things about uh, manners, and, and he's an intelligent guy. And so the, the Wells Fargo people are offering Dan Evans two hundred dollars to help them get Ben Wade to the three ten to Yuma. And the little wife is saying, please don't do this, don't do this, don't. you're going to get killed, don't, 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 please don't do it. And, and, and the husband, Dan Evans, is saying, but honey, what do we do about our son who's got tuberculosis? The, 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 the farm is about dead, I've got to do it. They've got a 14-year-old son by the name of William, and he wants to go along, but he says, oh, no, you can't go. But he sneaks on, of course, and goes. So, so Dan says, okay, and he takes the $200 if he can get Ben Wade to the 310 at Yuma. And so, of course, as they're going, everybody gets killed but Dan. I mean, they kill, the, the gang slaughters everybody except Dan and Ben. Ben's the criminal, Dan's the family man. And so they get into this hotel and they got two hours to wait for the 310 to Yuma to get there and, and, you know, everybody's getting very nervous and there's, you know, everybody's shooting everybody and, and it's a real shoot 'em up kind of thing. And, 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 um, so they're in these constant discussions, Ben and Dan. And he's talking about, that's where it came out that his mother had left him in a train station while he was reading the Bible. 
And Dan tells him, you know how I lost my foot? I lost it when one of, I was shot by one of my own soldiers when we were retreating from the enemy. And then he says, how do you explain that to your 14-year-old son? And at that moment, at least as I saw the movie, something happened to Ben Wade, the criminal. And Ben Wade all of a sudden decides, he doesn't say it, but he now becomes Dan Wade's helper and getting himself on the train so that Dan can be the hero and have the 200 bucks. In fact, he even shoots one of his own gang members so that Ben Wade can get on the train so that Dan can have the money. And here's the point, ladies and gentlemen. After having visited in the home of Dan Evans and his family and seeing this love exchange between a husband and a wife, and seeing the great value that was placed on family and, and children and the sacrifices that needed to be made. It did something. It did something to Ben Wade. So much so that a man who described himself as being rotten clean through. He even says, if I had a gun, he said to the 14 year old boy, if I had a gun, I'd shoot you in the back. But having seen this family... And understanding something about what's what's going on in there, it was so overcoming that Ben Wade gives up himself to get on the 310 to Yuma. You know what, ladies and gentlemen, here's my point. A marriage that is functioning the right way. It's downright beautiful. It's, it's even evangelistic. When somebody gets to see a husband playing his biblically given role and a wife playing hers, it impacts them. So I leave you with this exhortation. Let's get your dancing shoes on. Everybody take their places. And let's start the music. And through all of the dips and the spins and the worlds of this marital dance, might the world be able to see two people playing their roles and producing something beautiful. You do know, don't you, that the one who submitted the best and loved the most was Jesus Christ. And we belong to him. Now, out of that indicative comes this imperative. Wives, submit. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
Our Father, I do pray that you will remind us of the design that is contained in your word, that um, no TV talk show host, no magazine article has ever produced anything even approaching the beauty of the design contained in your word. It is we who have listened to the wrong authorities and have paid a pretty hefty, steep price for ours, having so done. So, Father, forgive us. I pray that you will raise up men who will spill their blood, if need be, so that their wives can be loved. And that you'll raise up women who find the role of helping her husband lead their home is her absolute and utter delight. Grant us that, Father. We want to reach the Ben Wades of the world. And one of the ways is if we can show them this glorious marital dance of two people playing God-assigned roles. We pray all of this, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.